Hey lovelies, before we get started, I want to make sure that you know that the snuggle dress, my best-selling winter dress from last year, is on pre-order in black and two new colors. Chances are right when we're listening to this. The snuggle dress is my version of a sweater dress that, just like a good snuggle with someone you love, is designed to make you feel incredible. It's made of a luxurious knit fabric and features a mock neckline and puff sleeves with a tight cuff. The body of the dress is cocoon-shaped, so you can move about your day comfortably. It comes in sizes extra small through 2X. The sizing is equivalent to my regular range of sizes 2 through 24. Now, the new colors are olive, a deep, rich green, and mauve, the most flattering, pinky, purpley color you've ever seen. I'm also going to be restocking the black and that's on pre-order as well. Uh, you might remember that last year the sungle dress came in mustard. I have a handful of those left. I'm not restocking those. If you want to get your hands on one, you're welcome to go check them out on the site. The pre-order opens late afternoon, Monday, October 24th, so the day that this episode uh, first airs, and closes early Thursday morning, October 27th. The link is in the show notes. If it still works or you still see it listed on impactfashionnyc.com, you can still pre-order. Pre-ordering guarantees you get the size and color you want and allows you to shop stress-free without any launch day jitters. Pre-orders are guaranteed to ship by November 28th. When it does come in, quantities will be super limited because my stockroom just isn't that big. Pre-order the snuggle dress and learn more by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Ricky Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with an author, entrepreneur, and pivot master about her path. She shares what it was like to give up her theater dreams after realizing she simply wasn't good enough, intentionally launching her first business, what it's like to out-earn her husband and have people assume her job is just a hobby, and her newest project, Big Idea Blueprint. conversation, you'll hear Meg Keen describe herself as the internet's bossy big sister. And honestly, that sort of nails it. I'm wary of pretty much any business advice I read online, especially if it's coming from someone who has only ever told other people how to run a company and not actually done it themselves. Meg Keen has been there, done that, and has all the life changes racked up to prove it. I was a mix, I think, of quiet and pushy. Um, And I read all the time. Um, I was really obsessed with, uh, like anything that was like historical fiction, but historical anything, um, which I've tried to foist on my daughter and she's like, I don't, I'm not really interested. Um, so I was the pushy, quiet kid who grew up to just be the like kind of pushy, smart kid. Um, and then I got into theater when I was a little older. So then I was the bossy theater kid. Oh, I love the bossy theater kid though. I was the bossy theater kid too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Camp plays my, my were my thing. Was. My husband and I were theater, bossy theater kids together actually. So, uh, we knew each other then. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. I was also the bossy theater kid, basically just in summer camp and it was fun. It, you know. I was, I actually, I always played the, the guy in the play because I was in an all girls camp and there was always right. like, I was always the lead, which was always like the rabbi or like the mayor of the town or the whoever. It was always a guy. I don't know why they didn't just change the script to make it a girl, but that's separate. And they, um, I had like a, I, I kept 
suits that were like in the camp costume stash and I actually wrote my name inside a couple of them because like I knew that they fit me and they were comfortable and I was like nobody could touch those suits those are Rifki suits they probably still have my name in them if you're in Sturberg now check the inside of the costume suits for my name and let me know if you if you see it um so did the did the bossy theater kid always know that she was going to be an entrepreneur I think I knew so I grew up I don't talk about this a lot but I grew up um doing renaissance fairs like working them which meant that I was around and on the west coast it was really like the leftover hippie you know what it was like sort of being dropped into the like the early 70s um but it meant that I was surrounded by entrepreneurs and specifically like craftspeople, not mm-hmm. just like regular entrepreneurs but like you know, I worked at like a pewter smith where, you know, I knew the guy who like did the elaborate carvings and like my sister helped like pour molten metal when she was like 10 um, or like costume designers. So I was around all of that from a really young age, which um, I think 100% shaped like how I thought about entrepreneurship and how I thought about working for yourself. And I remember... Um, the clothing designer that I worked with for years at one point told me um, that there was this idea that entrepreneurship was risky, but basically that like life was risky. And at least if you're working for yourself, you're like controlling, you know, like you're flying the plane as opposed to like, maybe it feels different when you're like back sitting in a seat, but like really you just have less control. So Um, I ended up going, I went to NYU for theater and by then I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't really have a shape to it. Like I, I knew I wanted to do something and I didn't know what it was. And at first I thought it was going to be theater. And then I worked in theater in New York for a long time and was like, this is not functional and you know, don't make any money. Um, so I left and then I was trying to sort of figure out what that looked like but I did have a long period of time where I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to work for myself and I didn't I hadn't figured out like sort of my entrance point into that so when you decided that you wanted to leave theater after having majored in theater like you had made a series of decisions that were like you went from being the bossy theater kid to like no I'm the theater major I am this is what I am going to do what was it like to decide to leave that behind? I'm assuming that wasn't fun. No, it wasn't fun. It was pretty traumatic. Um, it was, so So for people who don't know, I went to NYU's theater program, which is in the top like three or five or whatever in the United States. Um, and it's a, it's a BFA program. So that meant that not only was I like a theater major, but Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays when I was in college, um, I was in studio. So that meant that it was like nine to five. Um, I was in acting class or, you know, I was not a musical theater major, but I was a physical theater. I majored in experimental theater, extremely practical, <laughs> but you know, so I was in like physical movement classes or whatever. It's my favorite part of my resume. Um, it's a so, fantastic. It's a fantastic line. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm better at contact improvisation than you are. Uh, you can have whatever. it. Whoever you are. Um, And then I ended up going into theater administration. So 
Um, I worked, for example, at New York Musical Theater Festival, which is where, like, in the Heights premiered, like, Lin-Manuel was around. Like, I did a, I, like, basically ran a gala where he performed, et cetera. Um, and my husband, at that point, who had majored it in theater at Stanford, had moved to New York. We had a theater company together for a while. He was a playwrights agent. Um, we got together at some point during that period. Um, and we both sort of decided to leave at the same time because it was so dysfunctional. Um, and I ended up temping when I left because I just like did not know what I wanted to do. Um, and I ended up in an investment bank and then he was moving to go to law school and I was clear I was going with him. Um, and I ended up in an investment bank in San Francisco because they got me a job. Um, but it was it was traumatic, especially because I didn't know where I was going next. Though actually, in retrospect, I think that that was probably a healthier choice to have this middle space of, right, like it wasn't like I went from one big dream to another, but I had this period where I was sort of like, who am I without that? And, and you know, it was difficult, but I think it was hard. It was, it was good. I, what I do know is that it made things easier after that because theater was my big dream and it was my big passion um and I I also left acting just because like flat out I wasn't good enough which is like one of the great things about going to New York I think um sometimes I'll tell people like oh I left acting because I wasn't good enough and people will be like shocked and be like well that's probably not true and I'm like no it's just objectively true but it's one of the great things about going to New York or the hub of wherever like what you care about is right is that you can like I know people that are like sort of languishing in community theater at 45, wondering if they're like good enough to make it. You go to New York, you figure it out, right? So I knew I wasn't good enough to make it in that. And I was talented enough to make it in theater administration, which I didn't want to do in the end. So it was like I had sort of fate let myself fail at the thing I cared the most about. And I was, as a result, much less emotionally entangled in anything I did after that, because I was sort of like, well, like, I let the big dream go. So now I'm just like playing around. So um, like having written two books, for example, like, I, it took me years to even call myself a writer. And I still only somewhat like deep down identify as a writer. And so it's just, it's like easier because I don't have all of this emotion tied up in it. Right. I mean, when you did first say, like, I stopped acting because I objectively wasn't good enough, I, I did a little bit, like, I don't know if cringe or, like, jump, and it's 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 interesting to hear you describe that way. I totally know, as someone who is in fashion in New York um, and who dabbled in, like, the wider, when I say, like, the wider fashion world, I mean not the modest fashion world, but, like, as someone who dabbled in that area, I totally get what you mean. Like, New York will tell you if you suck to your face immediately, mm -hmm. and then you know chew you up and spit you right back out did you did you feel like it kind of sounded like you lived out the extent of that big dream that you were gonna get like it kind of sounds like you were given this gift of just you know of, how old were you at this point I when I left I was 26 okay so you like had this experience of like in your early 20s kind of like seeing living like you did the entirety of the dream to the level yes. that you could do it do you know what I mean like you yes. had like you had seen the beginning middle and end of that story and then you just had to figure out what was going to happen next and it turned out it was investment banking 
(laughs) (laughs) Plot twist. Plot twist. Um, I have this really, I have a somewhat risk-taking personality, which is funny because I'm an oldest and that's supposed to be like the Mm -hmm. youngest child's thing. Um, But I do... I have an anxiety condition so I will sort of like jump off the cliff but then like panic on the way down right um but I always jump off the cliff like every single time um but I have a really sort of no regrets personality and no regrets like philosophy where I feel like if I want to do it I'm going to do it and do it to the end right so I really always feel good about the and it was very intentional at the time but like I feel I never have to look back and say like what if I had decided to pursue acting what could have happened could I have been a big star right like I pursued it I tried it and I also um have a sort of like rip the band-aid off fail fast kind of personality I also looked around at at by like 26 or 27 I was kind of looking around New York and seeing what it looked like people who had just maybe didn't have what it took and were still sort of stuck in that process at like 45 and or 50 you know and I'm 42 now so I'm approaching that point and I was like I don't want to do like I don't want to be here languishing at 45 so if this is not working I'm gonna figure I'm gonna leave and figure it out but I really like the I like that part of my personality. I like the fact that I just like go all the way and then are like, I don't have to look back and wonder. I'm like, I know how it worked out. And like, yes. exactly. Like we've closed that chapter. I'm, I'm going to mm-hmm. be presumptive for a moment and guess that like the fact that your husband had decided to leave and go to law school, that that also like, I, I don't think you were married at the time, but like, mm-hmm. did that, like, I'm, I'm assuming that all of that also played into your decision yeah. a little bit. Well, so he left before I did. Um, He left about a year before I did, I think. And he had, um, he was basically like, I either want to do theater or law. Um, And he double majored in at Stanford in in history and um, theater. And so he moved to New York, which is when we started hanging out all the time and eventually got together, even though we'd known each other for years. I mean, we went to... um, preschool together at the synagogue so that's uh, adorable it's it's also like extra adorable because I converted so I was like the one non-Jewish kid there but um but I like oh, right that's that. such a good point oh that's really cute yeah yeah I, I love it I mean there's all sorts of like Bashir whatever back uh, with all of it because I like was begging to go to Hebrew school and telling my mom she had to talk to the rabbi and explain to the rabbi that I was going to be Jewish and I needed to go to Hebrew school and my mom was like that's not how it works but anyway so I did grow up around that synagogue in a very not Jewish area by the way um but he had left a year before and I think that sort of let me so he had tried theater got to the end of his journey and was like, I guess I'm doing law. And so he was assisting an attorney. Um, so it made it easier. Um, I also, I think, steered the conversation about where he was going to law school, which I certainly was weighing in on, right? Because I believe he got into like Fordham and that would have been a consideration. Like if I was staying in theater, we probably would have stayed in New York. But um, 
I wasn't. And so, and I had been there for nine years at that point and I was feeling like I'm ready to try something new. Um, so it all did in retrospect kind of work together. Um, and he was able to sort of, I mean, I think my husband has always worked this way for me that he, um, he both really pushes me very hard, which is great because a lot of that often is not the case. Um, instead of holding me back, he's always like pushing me, pushing me. Um, but he all also like gives me permission to do stuff that I like deep down want to do, or I'm like considering. And I think having someone in your life, it doesn't have to be a, a spouse, but like having a friend or, you know, having those people in your life who are like, you can be honest about what you're feeling and, and you can figure it out. And it's okay for you to like feel or think something that feels like it's outside of the bounds of what you should feel. I think that's really helpful. And I think having someone like that has sort of pushed me to make decisions faster because we had friends who stayed in New York and stayed in theater for like another decade. Like we, we, I remember a visit when we were all like 35 or 36. And at that point, like we had moved, we had found new careers. We had bought a house. We had two kids. Right. And we still had friends who were literally having the same conversations that we were having 10 years ago. Like, should we leave? Should we whatever? Um, And they'd spent 10 years just like kind of going in a circle, trying to figure it out. Whereas we kind of started the conversation then we're like, okay, great. Like we got to go. And so I'm really glad that we did because it just, I don't know, sort of pushed things faster. Right. Um, It's, I mean, listen, if you're stuck in a, it's hard to identify yourself as stuck. It's also really hard to do what you did, which was say, no, I'm objectively not good enough at this and we need to leave. Like just right. saying, I'm not good enough to do this thing. I'm going to go do a different thing is, is I mean, it's not fun. That's not, yeah. it's not fun. It's not easy. So I, I understand how you end up having the same conversations for a decade. You know, mm-hmm. I, I understand I, that, that to me makes perfect sense. I know that it was during this you know, while you were working at this investment bank that a practical wedding came to be, um, yeah. which by the way, a practical wedding is freaking awesome. And I really love it. And I would love if you could tell me more about like how that came to be, what drew you to it? Um, and, and what was that story like? Yeah. So I, I mean, first of all, we, I was in this position where I was in an investment bank. I was working, you know, 60 hour weeks, Um, I was covering West Coast banking, which I was told was like the most boring sector. I was writing, helping to write research um, when I got that job in 2007. Um, And yeah, mm -hmm, we had banks under coverage that failed. Like, well, I would be monitoring a call between my boss and the CEO, like the day before the bank failed. Right. So it was um, very stressful. And I did not enjoy, I did not enjoy my time. Um, I was, during earnings season, I would work 29 hour shifts. You would come in at six in the morning for market open in New York. Um, And I would usually be allowed to leave to like get something to eat at 10 the next, nine or 10 the next morning. And then I had to be back at noon for an earnings call, like until two. And then I wouldn't get to leave. So I remember like staring out the window at like three in the morning once being like, this is like having a baby, but it's not emotionally rewarding. (laughs) So I was not in a great place. Um, I mean, at least my husband was in law school. So he was, 
busy and I think it gave him a lot he did very very well in law school he was a little bit older because he didn't go straight through but it also gave him the structure of like you know he was with all these 22 year olds who just come out of college and he had a girlfriend then fiance then wife who was going to work in the morning right so he just like got up and treated law school like a job which I think made it easier so all of that was going on at the same time the economy was falling apart I mean falling apart for those of you that remember um and I was so close to it that I also really understood like at one point when Lehman failed my husband had to like take me out across the Golden Gate Bridge like look at this because I was like the world financial like system may collapse right on Monday like we were so close to the edge and he was like that physical city will still be standing if like the world financial system collapsed like I was just so close to like the edge um I remember going to Rosh Hashanah services one day after the market had plunged like 20 percent and I should have I was like sheet white um and like you know some of the older people at our at our shul were like knew what I did and knew what was going on and were like are you okay and I was like I don't know um so at so I needed a way out I was reading which ended up taking a while but um, this was the very early days of blogs being monetized. And I had been reading blogs since sort of the very early days, since like 2002 is when it became sort of a daily habit for me. And uh, 2006, 2007 really is when there started like being monetization and then it sort of just took off. And a bunch of, actually all of the wedding blogs started in 2007. We got engaged in 2008. So I was already reading them because I was, really had always just been really into weddings um and then we got engaged and suddenly it wasn't fun anymore because you know you had a wedding to plan you know I had a wedding to plan and I had a husband in law school um we did not have family that were like giving us it it was a weird conflicted situation actually in that um my family didn't have a ton of money to give um my husband's family didn't for some reason didn't want to contribute a lot of money I think maybe there was this traditional idea of like the bride's family pays um but that you know like there were limits there um but David had this has this like huge Jewish family um and the and his family is he's second generation so there's still that immigrant family thing of like you have to show that you've made it right Mm -hmm. so I had this con conflict of like the money wasn't being provided but also like the requirements kept getting added right and I was like things cost money like I don't understand how I'm supposed to like weave this through um and my mother-in-law kept saying that we could have it at her synagogue in LA which was or, or in Newport Beach which is not where my husband had grown up right so he was like I don't even know the rabbi like I never lived there like why would I have like why would I have my wedding in like a synagogue where I've like don't even know the rabbi so there was all this pressure and I was coming home crying and um like every night and so my husband like it, I've said it so many times it feels fictional but it's very true um, my husband suggested I start a blog, my own blog, and suggested I call it a practical wedding. Um, and he actually sat down and like put together the blog spot for me that weekend. Um, and then I did not tell anybody about it literally for a month. I wanted to 
proved to myself that I could publish five times a week. And I mean, they were like little bitty posts at the time, but like I could publish five times a week, Monday through Friday for a month before I told anybody. That's um, a very smart way to go about that. Yeah. I was like, I don't write like, and then I emailed like one other wedding blogger and was like, Hey, I'm doing this thing. And she linked to me right away. And at that point, and that felt huge at the time, but suddenly I had like 350 or 500 readers a day. Like That is huge. Right. Like, I mean, it, I went on to have numbers that, you know, were staggering compared to that, but, um, you know, and those were real people that wasn't like people right. Googling stuff, whatever. Um, and I knew I had, I, it was just like, things felt like they clicked. Like it literally felt like it clicked into place kind of immediately when that happened, I was like, this is it. This is the business. Like, this is going to work. I can, I could just like feel it clicking into place. Um, but I mean, women's, I talk about this all day, but women's businesses tend and, and anything in sort of the women's space tends to not be taken as, as seriously. Um, and so there was this outward perception that I was just like running a personal wedding blog and like it accidentally turned into a business. Um, but the reality was like, I knew from the jump that I was trying to build a business and then it was just, and I actually kind of had a vision for it from the very beginning. And then it was just many years of me trying to get to the vision. Um, and really what I always say about that is that building that kind of business, and I have to remind myself now when I'm building a new business, that I was able to build actually way past my sort of biggest dream for that business. Like I was able to build something much bigger than I could have imagined or would have sort of dared to imagine, but also it took much more time than I would have imagined. So like, my dream for it was a little bit more modest, but I thought, I thought I could get there in like a year. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and it took a lot more time, but like, I ended up with like two best-selling wedding books that bought us a house and, you know, like are still bestsellers. Um, and you know, a staff and an office and all of, all of these things. So, but I, I also think that the human brain is really, not adept at at figuring out even with tons of experience our, the human brain is not very good at figuring out how long things will take um and it's that whole thing of like we vastly overestimate what we can do in a day and then vastly underestimate what we can do in like a year or right. you know whatever sort of that metric is for how your brain works yeah i i definitely hear that i'm curious you know, you, you mentioned this in passing, this idea about women's businesses not being taken seriously. And I know that this is something, I know that women's business in general is something that you're super passionate about. Talk to me more about that. Why do you think, I mean, why do you think that women's, everything has been undervalued for centuries, but like that, you know, that, uh, elaborate on that for me a little bit. What, do you think that this is something that I, cause I get stuck in this place of, I think that too often, um, and Vivian Kay talks about this a lot, that like women will wait until they are fully qualified to pursue a promotion. And studies have shown this, that, you know, if there's a promotion at work or if there's some big project, women will wait until they check all of the boxes and are fully qualified while men will just go, yeah, I could probably do that. And then, mm -hmm. you know, and then figure it out on the fly. 
do you think that this is something that like we do to ourselves or that we're just kind of always moderating for what's happening around us? I think it's a combination. I mean, as someone, to your point, as someone who spent years hiring, um, uh, we have a joke about a character that we call Chad White. Um, because we literally had someone apply once whose name was basically Chad White, um, that women and people of color and people of like, you know, various like ethnic or any kind of minority, right, are, are like always like applying for something like four times below their level. And then like Chad White would apply and literally would be like, I have only worked at Starbucks, but I am fairly certain that I could run your marketing department. And you're like, beast on what, Chad? And Chad was like, I watched half a TED talk and I'd be like, I've got it now. Um, so there is that. Um, and it's actually why I decided a long time ago that I like to almost exclusively work with women. I also think it sort of levels the playing field when everyone on the team or almost everyone on the team like sort of functions in the same way and is like dealing with the same sort of like programming. Um, but I also just think that women's everything is, is undervalued and has been for centuries. Um, I've been reading romance novels recently and posting about them and thinking about how like women's fiction, for example, is undervalued. Um, I have a cousin-in-law basically in England who um, write, it writes like tremendously popular women's fiction there, like the kind that you pick up at the airport. Um, and she makes, you know, huge sums of money because anyone who writes like that level of bestseller makes huge sums of money. Um, but it's, you know, I've talked to her about her being treated like she basically like doesn't have a job. Right. right. Um, and that her, that her partner who's in banking, like must make all the money and she like vastly out earns him. And that has always been the case in our marriage or at least was until this recent pivot um where I'm sort of working things out um where I always vastly out earned I mean I started a business when my husband was still in law school right, right. so I was vastly out earning him then um and I went on to continue to like vastly out earn him I still actually out earn him if you look at gross it's just like expenses and whatever but I've always out earned him and I have always been asked like well I've always been treated like I had sort of like a hobby business that he must be supporting the hobby business this drives me nuts when we had kids suddenly what was happening was that and we both had you know demanding full-time jobs suddenly what was happening is people were like oh great so basically like are you gonna watch the kid while you work like you Mm -hmm. you won't need child care and I was like, nobody's asking if he's going to put like a playpen into the office as an attorney, right? Like, right. yeah, kid, but, uh, but like, I'm somehow supposed to like, which is a double undervaluing, right? Because it's like, right. do you not understand that like taking care of kids is like a job? You don't just like put them in a playpen and then like leave them and hope that they're fine. It's not like, it's not right. like Yeah, a it's job. like just fully not. And I will say this, I'm guilty of this before I became a mom of like not really understanding what this meant. But like, I, I remember there was, when I was on maternity leave, um, someone had, and, and we were talking about, you know, looking for a babysitter, which was by far one of the most stressful things I've ever done in my entire life. And the, 
Um, and someone had even said like, oh, you're going to get a babysitter? Like, aren't you just going to like work your job around like nap schedule? And I was like, that, no, that's not how, it's like, first of all, do you not understand how often like napping is actually occurring, which is like not nearly enough to like run a business. And how much work is involved in getting them to nap. Exactly. You need a nap. Right, exactly. And like, I remember even like when one person said this to me um, and it was a man. And I remember there was like this realization dawning on his face that was like, oh, you must actually make money doing that thing you do that it makes sense to hire a babysitter. Like there was like, he didn't actually say that out loud, but I could, it was like, oh, you're going to get a babysitter so you can go to work. Yeah. That's how that's going to have to happen, hon. Like it was, it was just very, it, it was like, it's so clear. You're right. That like the hobby right. job, like, oh, you're just going to like make this work around the, you know, the schedule. Be like, yeah, no, right. you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. So I do think it's just, you know, and I sort of have the double whammy of having a husband who's an attorney. So he has like a very sort of classic, you know, like inside the box job. And I have often had the kind of job where like I don't even know how to say what I do right like it's like (laughs) I'm a publisher on the internet and I have the staff and I like run a website and I have books like sort of how do you sum that up um I'm guilty of often just trying to avoid talking about what I do especially because I went through a period where I was very recognizable for example like within the age bracket of people getting married um, there was this there was a situation where we were at like a Havara thing. Um, we were a little bit older, you know, it was like a young, like 30s, 20s and 30s or whatever Havara thing. And um, I like looked around and basically like saw a bunch of recent wedding photos and was like, oh, like they are going to know my business and they're going to know who I am. Um, and at the end, and I had sort of avoided it because I was like, you know, I'm here for Shabbat. I don't want to get into this. And, um, at the end, the couple that was hosting was like, oh, I remember like holding my baby, my oldest being like ready to head out the door. And they were like, what do you do? And I like engaged in like a bunch of avoidant answers and they kept right. Like I was like, oh, I work on the internet. And they were like, what do you do? And I was like, I'm a publisher. And they're like, what do you do? And like they got all the mm-hmm. way. I was like, I write about weddings and they're like, Oh, what is it? And then I finally was like, Oh, I own a practical wedding. And like the whole room at once was like, Oh my God. And there was this one guy in the corner who I've liked him ever since. Now he does like membership deals. Um, he's like the treasurer of the show. And every time I see him, I think about this because he started like laughing so hard. He was like, almost crying he he was like she tried so hard not to tell you what she did she tried so hard and you didn't leave her alone um so it was this weird mix of like either people like absolutely knew what I did and who I was um and it felt like they would overreact or people were like oh you don't even work and would underreact but I think also having that like husband was this very in the box job you know like now he's a partner at a law firm so of course the assumption is that like I probably don't even work right <laughs> like right. he's not he's not a partner at big law so that's not the case anyway but 
Um, I mean, thank goodness. But yeah, so it was like he had this very traditional in the box male job and I had this very tradi- untraditional, you know, out of the box job in like the women's space. Um, and it took years, even within like his family for that to sort of settle out. And it's now interesting because we are, we're older millennial. We're like on the cusp, right? Like I was born in mm-hmm. 1980. So we're right in the cusp between millennial and Gen X. And in his family, we're the oldest of the cousins by quite a bit. And now suddenly his like baby cousins are all like in their 20s, like moving into their 30s. And a bunch of them now have jobs in this space that I sort of, you know, like pioneered in and are like running websites or writing on the internet or whatever. And so it's interesting because now people in his family seem to understand what I do more because there's like, we're far enough, far enough into this that there's like, you know, baby cousins doing it too. But like, it is also, I think this, which, which would apply to you both in the women's space and in terms of this, but like, there were many years where if your business was online, people just like, didn't understand, right? right? Like they're like, oh, do you have a boutique where you sell clothes? And you're like, no, I sell them on the internet. And they're like, oh, I see it's made up. Right, exactly. <laughs> especially like, especially because I mean, listen, there's a significant age gap between us. I'm 27. And when you're talking about like starting up your blogs, I don't know that in like 2006, I would put my credit card into a website like that wasn't considered a safe thing to do. And now it's I mean, who leaves their house ever now? So right. I was early. Right. You- it has been great because it's like, I really like it. it has been amazing where I ended up sort of hoping to be in the early crop of, of establishing businesses online. And it's why I'm, it's one of the reasons I'm good at what I do now, right? Like I'm really good at, at there are many people, um, just so everybody knows. So I have branched out and I'm working on practical, a project I'm calling practical business school. And so I have clients that I do business consulting or business coaching or whatever you want to call it um and there are a lot of people who sell themselves as business coaches who have been in this space for like a hot minute or not at all or have like only ever run a business that is like coaching and ever run another business and I have 14 years working with other business owners so I have this you know huge bank of knowledge um where I can also like put together the pieces right where I can be like oh so-and-so in 2014 tried this and then it turned into this in 2017 and then this in 2018. So I can sort of string together the pieces for people. Um, And I was there as we were like figuring stuff out, like no online business, like no independent online business in 2008 was like working on SEO. (laughs) I ended up having a site that was like hugely successful in terms of internet search and still is, right? So I don't do that as a day job right now, but I still cash of ad revenue from from search. But I was, nobody was building, like no one was strategically building like SEO search for weddings at that point. And neither was I, I just had like a very active website that was organic 
And so I started coming up on the top for searches all of the time. And then I figured it out and was able to sort of systemize it in a way that other people weren't, which meant I was able to grow in a way that other people weren't. But um, yeah, I was just early to the party, basically. Right. I, I definitely hear that. And one of these things that I'm noticing that you are, I, I think that you're good at recognizing a moment to pivot, you know, a moment yeah. to change directions to to in some cases like with your early theater career give up on something that's not working and and go pursue something else and in other cases like with what you're doing now take skills and resources that you have and making them work better for something else um i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that a two-year shutdown was not great for the wedding business it was not (laughs) but also it was not And a bunch of stuff online sort of was changing at the same time in terms of how Google was handling search, et cetera. Um, But actually, as you were saying that, I was thinking that one of the things that I think has made me good at pivoting um, is that, and that, you know, like anything we're good at, we always feel like we could be better at. Mm -hmm. But I am decently okay at, it is in my skill set to notice when things stop being fun and stop being rewarding and then say I think I need to do something else and I think a lot of people feel like sort of once you're in a thing or a track or whatever you just have to stick it out um and I get to a point where I'm like this doesn't feel I mean nothing is fun all of the time, right? Like even slightly. Um, But right, there's like the the beautiful inspiration and then all the like just drudgery that it takes. Like I always joke, like someone has to take out the trash, right? Like, And for a long time, it's gonna be you. Um, But I think I'm reasonably good at, at being like, this is not fun anymore. And weddings stopped being fun in shutdown. And weddings were always a thing where it was like, I survived so long in that business because weddings are really recession proof, right? Like people are always getting me. I started that business in a recession. Like people are always, that was always the line. People are always going to get married until suddenly, like you literally couldn't. I mean, there was a period I was being called alarmist at the beginning. Um, Turns out I wasn't even vaguely alarmist enough, but I remember in like March or early April of 2020, telling people like I think if you need to if you want to get married like you need to go get your marriage license this week because it looks to me like things are going to shut down and you're not going to be able to get a marriage license and within a week or two that had happened I mean there was a period where like you literally could not get married because you could not go in New York City like to the marriage bureau and get a license because it was shut right Right. so we went from like Weddings will always happen. <laughs> Weddings are not happening at all. And then to like a good year and a half of it just feeling miserable, right? Where people were right. replanning their weddings like two, three, four times. And like the fourth time you plan your wedding and you're finally able to pull it off is not like the same joyous feeling, right? Like it is not joyous wedding. planning a wedding under the best of circumstances. Totally. <laughs> and you have like your beautiful dream wedding, like there were people who had like everything finalized. Like I would think about it and be like, this is my nightmare. If I had been in this situation, like they had their wedding finalized and they were a month away from getting married and then shutdown happened. 
and they didn't weren't able to get married for another year but they had four weddings planned in between like it was not fun and it got to a point where I was able to do everything to make it happen right like I was written up in the Wall Street Journal for like cutting my salary to pay employees for a while um I think ironically speaking of women's business versus other I was featured with this guy who's now getting um written up everywhere for like he was supposed to be this magical ideal boss and turns out he was like sexually harassing or assaulting his employees <sighs> and he was like the feature picture on that article and on the, I was like the cute side story and I'm like well funny how things change um but like I was getting the great and, and all of that has helped me like I had a good business setup so I got PPP twice I got EIDL loans which are still like helping me figure stuff out like I did everything that I possibly could have to keep my team employed as long as I can could to keep things going and then there came up they're just like it you know I started slowly working on side projects and then like pivoted more and more because I was like this is not fun and I don't there's no reason that I have to continue to like punish myself in this way yeah i I hear it. That's, that's such a great way of thinking about it. Like, I don't need to continue punishing myself to continue pursuing this thing that I thought that I would always pursue. So the first project out of a practical business school is called the big idea blueprint. And it sounds very cool. And I would love if you could give me like the three second version of what it is and how it works. Um, and, and, and why it's like special coming from you knowing all that we know now about, you know, about your story. Yeah. So this, I came up with this, in early 2022, I thought, like we discussed, I was like, it'll be fast and easy to put together. It wasn't, um, took till the fall. Uh, but it is a, what I thought was a mini course and actually it's kind of a big course, um, about, it's about pivoting and it's about, I mean, it's really about pivoting where I put everything I knew, um, over the past 14, well, really longer plus years, if you take my theater pivot into account, um, about how to come up with a new idea and how to get to the minimum viable product point. Um, and I wrote it with like two groups of people in mind, one people that are like coming up with a business for the first time, um, but also those of us who are in business and know we need a change. But as I started writing it, I realized that a lot of the important information was stuff that I was never given and was re is really not out there, um, at least in this way, which is like, you need to start this process from thinking about like what you actually want out of your life. And then literally the other part that people miss is thinking about like, oh, you have a cool idea. You have something you're passionate about. And then thinking about the logistical reality of like what is involved, right? Like if you're gonna be a fashion designer, I, we all have an idea in our head of like what that is gonna look like. And you could be the first to tell us that there's like a bunch of like logistical things that are just, were nowhere on your list when you started thinking about yep. it. Um, and one of the big things that I always, that I talk about in this course um, and I never hear people talk about is also thinking about like, who are you gonna work with? Who are your customers going to be? Who are you going to work around? And do you actually like these people? Because so often I end up seeing people build really successful businesses where they um, dislike their entire client base, right? <laughs> or they like- Do you even like these people? Wow. 
do or like the people that you're working with as your suppliers or your colleagues mm-hmm. or whatever, right? Like turns out you hate their guts. Right? Yeah. And suddenly you're in a business where you're like, I have to call this guy like five times a week and I don't like him. And he's like the best one I could find. And my customers annoy me. Um, and I've just seen it happen so many times that as I started writing this, I was like, oh, we have to like step it back, right? Like I, it's a seven module course and I set it up so it's perpetual. So once you sign up, you can take it over and over. And, but we do live cohorts. So we're doing our first live cohort in the fall, then there'll be one in the spring. Um, but like the ebook, the videos I made, the, you know, recorded calls are all available all the time but it's a seven module course. And when I started, I think I thought it was like the last four modules. Mm. Um, And then I was like, wait, there's these other really important things that like we need to, uh, because the thing is most of online business education is, is marketed or taught. Like I can help you figure out how to make money. Well, it turns out making money is not actually the difficult part. Like, making enough money can be, but like, it's not actually that hard to find either a product or a service that people will pay you money for. But building what I have found from years, especially of working with like our advertiser businesses at APW, like so many small business owners, is that the trick is to find a way to make a business that, to build a business that has high enough margins that it pays you enough money, but also that you're not miserable and burned out and like hate the people you're working with and are an empty shell of yourself. Most businesses fail because people are miserable, not because they're not making money. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Just to be perfectly clear, I love all my customers now in case that wasn't obvious. <laughs> uh, just to be perfectly clear, but as you're as you're saying this, I'm thinking about the fact that like when I started Impact Fashion, it was a wholesale business. And yeah. while there are stores that I still have a relationship now with now and you know, we're coming off finishing like a, a whole pop-up tour before um before Rosh Hashanah, which you know was in stores and there are plenty of store owners who I am super super friendly with. Um, there are a good enough percentage who, um, let's just say we didn't get along. So like, and, and, and I really had to make a change based on that. And the, a big part of the reason why I decided to go exclusively online, um, and to not focus at all on the wholesale business was because I was miserable. I was miserable dealing with the stores. And I said, and like, I even remember now, hindsight's 2020. I made this decision in January of 2020, which turned out to be a really good time to decide you're not going into retail anymore. Um, but I literally, like at that point I said, listen, I don't know if this, I had had enough good indications from the website that like enough little inklings that were, okay, I think that this could maybe grow to something. And yes, this is taking a huge step back in terms of like my business growth and all of that. But I remember literally saying out loud, if my business needs wholesale to survive, I don't want it. I don't, I don't want to do this job anymore. And I'd much rather do this other job, you know, dealing directly with the people whose, you know, whose bodies my clothes are actually ending up on. And that has been nothing but a joy since. So it's- I, when I started, uh, I also run Nikiva, a Jewish women's community, and we switched it recently. Like I sort of started it more as a business last year. And now it's, it's shifting to be like a more free community model because I love the women involved but like it doesn't need to be my business but long story short when I started it people kept telling me like 
you have to run it on Facebook groups. I started it on Mighty Networks, which is like, so you can have sort of like an independent like mm-hmm. social network. But people were like, you have to run this on Facebook groups or no one will join. And I remember saying like, if this is a choice between starting a business that I have to run in Facebook groups or not starting this business, it would be not starting this business because I hate Facebook groups with a passion, mm-hmm. right? But sometimes we forget that like we get to, it's not unusual to get to a point where you're like, either I keep doing it this way. If I have to keep doing it this way, I'm going to be so miserable that I'm just not going to do it. Right. So like, that's an important piece, I think, in like figuring it out. And you are not the first person I have heard that from about wholesale. Let me just say. Wholesale in general is a miserable business. Cause I'll, t- I'll tell you the main thing that I realized, and this is my therapy for a second. The thing that that pissed me off the most about wholesale was that my business became dependent on how well somebody else ran their business. Mm -hmm. And not everybody has their act together. And I would like to think that for the most part, on a general basis, I do have my act together. So for me, it was really frustrating that sometimes there would be, I mean, listen, there were people who like didn't want to pay me because they just didn't think that they needed to pay their suppliers. And like, that's a different story. But there were other people who got themselves into a situation where through a series of their own stupid decisions, ended up with not enough money to pay their suppliers. And so, and I, and I was, and I'm sitting here, you know, literally holding the short stick Mm -hmm. and being like, why, why am I putting up with this? And why, like I created a situation where in order to pay my bills, you need to pay your bills and you're just not very good at that. Yeah, so. I mean, you timed that perfectly. I remember this article in April, in the New York Times, April 2020. I remember it particularly because Batsheva dress was sure. in it. And it was talking about, like, because Batsheva, I believe, like, wholesales to, like, really high-end yeah. retailers, right? And it was, like, retailers who had commissioned, like, huge runs of things, like Neiman Marcus or whatever, and then we're like, yeah, sorry, we shut down. So we're going to give you all of it back and like not pay any of the bills. And it was a, this story about all these designers and pointing out that they're, you know, like young designers running small businesses. Like these are not like, you know, and stores like Neiman Marcus, huge stores are right. like, we're not going to pay you. And they have like, you know, you have like $250,000 wrapped up in, yeah. And you can't go to your suppliers and be like, sorry, I'm not going to pay the manufacturing bill. Right. Yeah, like you no. already paid it. Yeah. The so, wholesalers always end up, we, we always end up with the, with the short stick. There's not a question. That's why I stopped doing it, but I, we're actually out of time by like a lot. Uh, and as, as wonderful as this has been, Meg, if somebody wants to continue the conversation, where can they go? Where can they find you? Um, please follow me on my personal Instagram at Meg Keen, M-E-G-K-E-E-N-E. Um, also at uh, Practical Business School on Instagram. And you can find me online um, at both of those URLs. Uh, and I have an email newsletter. So you can sign up for that and get lots of stories of being in business for a lot of years and, and plenty of advice because I forever and always on the internet's like bossy but loving big sister who wants to give you advice whether or not you want it i love that i'm gonna link all of that in the show notes i will also a uh, free plug for the newsletter it's a great newsletter i, I really it's one of the few that i actually read oh. so it's, it's it's a really fun one um, i'm gonna put all the links to that in the show notes last thing meg what does it mean to you to make an impact mm, i think about impact in terms of legacy a lot in terms of 
also I've been thinking a lot recently about what it means to model having a business with with kids as mm-hmm. my kids get a little bit older um and especially what it means to model a business having a having a daughter um and the fact that my daughter will say things like well you're in charge of you and you get to call the shots because you run things is really amazing and I think a lot about sort of the impact that will have um going forward in generations so I love that thank you so much for coming on today Meg I really appreciate it thank you for having me it was a delight Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Meg, her links are in the show notes. On the last episode, I spoke with Sarah Rifka Cohn, the founder of Ziesel's Links, about the way her work has changed since the pandemic left behind a whole lot of orphans. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 16 people listed by Aura Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getaura.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Ruth Gitz, with Catch Me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.